Let's let's start. I think tonight's going to be a dark class, and I'm you know that I my facetious sense of humor, but tonight I'm saying that with some seriousness. Um, I don't think I'm going to be using this. Is this on? Is it on? I want to get right to these disorders so that we can pick up where we were last week. But before we do, um, I want to say a prayer and then I'd like to read from the Windhover, or I mean the Wreck of the Dutchland. Um, if you all got my um, notes, you know that we're going to tackle what I think is next to Elliot, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I think this poem is among one of the hardest in the English language. Um, but Let's see what we do, um, okay? Um, any prayers? It's been a serious week. A number of people have died and, and, uh, and people are carrying grief, so. Um, any, any prayers tonight? Jimmy. James and Jimmy. Um, but he had a double heart attack. Um, but he's, he's actually doing really well. Um, they, every artery was 100% blocked. And they were able to unblock one of them with a stent, and that's it. And wow. the doctor told him no more surgeries. Wow. So he's got one artery wow. with a stent. But he's doing amazingly well. But I would uh, still love prayers for him. Um, does anybody have, do you have a pencil, a pen, an extra? Anybody else for prayer? Yes. My my co-aunt wife, uh, she and her entire family have gotten COVID-19, and it's become quite serious for her middle child, who's had seizures. So weird. So her the child's name is Mika. Mika. M I K. And my co-worker's name is Malia. 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 Quarantine because of COVID? COVID, yeah. yes. Yes, they're Hawaii. Yes, in Hawaii. Yes. Anybody I'm else? Really for a school in Hawaii. Mary. Uh, my youngest child, Caroline, is a junior at the University of Arkansas, and she's having great issues, financial issues, relationship issues. 
doubtful issues, and she calls me every day. Wow, good for her. Good for her. What's your name again? Caroline. Caroline. We call her Carrie. Yeah. Caroline. Let's start. I want to try to keep our prayers short in the beginning um, and try to pick them up. Do you have the ones from last week? Do you have the ones from last week? I can't read that. Do you have the ones from last week? You have your list. I'm gonna. Um, I think you know from my email. Um, Kay and Bob. Um, Kay missed last week because her mother took a serious turn, and I got up a note from the two of them. Um, her mother passed, so I want to pay, pray for her. Yeah. Let's start in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, a lot of passing, just reminders of an end that we're all going to face and meet. Um, I ask for blessings on all of us here. Um, this group is um, not young. We're all of, most of us are of an age. And um, it's a time when we don't know that we're going to be here, and friends of ours are passing, so um, let a grace come over this gathering, um, strengthen all of us in our faith in you. Um, Hopkins tonight is going to speak with some dread. Um, we know from our scripture that the beginning of wisdom is fear of you. So little said that way, it's, it's love and it's real, but um, at the center of our faith is this sense of how important it is to feel a kind of dread and awe because of your power. So help us to carry that, even if it adds some weight to those we already carry, the burdens. Um, I ask for a, um, a grace for um, Jimmy, it sounds like he's okay. Um, but be with him. Um, one artery is like walking on half a leg. Um, help him to, to a full recovery. Um, it's hard to believe one artery can sustain a life, but be with him and help him uh, in his recovery. Certainly help him be strengthened in his faith by what's happening. Be with, uh, is it Malia? Malia and her family, particularly um, Mika, um, that whole family, watch over them as they move through this infection, particularly with the youngster. Um, surround them with your protection, help heal them, um, let the prayers of all of those who love them move you, um, as our prayers here. And ask for um, a grace for Caroline, um, she's hold on. She's um, Mary's, Mary's youngest daughter, who's having trouble. This is your trouble. youngest, right? Yeah. Um, be with Caroline. It's strange. As a college teacher, I know uh, freshman, sophomore years are transitions. You're leaving a home and entering a world and beginning to take on responsibilities and standing in the world in a different way. It's always a transition that presents all sorts of challenges. Be with her in her struggles. Um, help her to find her way. <laughs> um, 
she has a good resource in her mother, so keep her in touch with her um, daily. What a wonderful thing that she would do that. Um, help Mary to be a source of comfort as her daughter goes through these struggles. I ask a special grace for Kay's mom. Um, receive her into your kingdom. Wash away her sins, please. Um, if there's a purgatory, let our prayers help. It's one of, we're not Protestants. It just isn't each of us privately alone. We believe that we share each other's sins and very often people we don't even know are praying for us and their prayers count. So let it be so for Kay's mother. Um, let our prayers help her um, to see her way to you, to experience the joy of looking upon your face. Be with Kay and Bob, keep them safe in their travels, um, see them safely back here. Um, I ask her a blessing for all those prayers um, that were kept silent tonight. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Um, turn to the Rebbe of the Dutchman. You know that we've read Hopkins before. We've done The Wind Hover and um, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. We've done Spring and Fall. I think we've done God's Grandeur. So over the years, we've done a number of his poems. This is his hardest. It's a special poem. It's, it's um, very, very difficult. Um, Hopkins had not, I think I've told you this before, that when he entered the priesthood, he stopped writing because he felt that writing poetry was too great a temptation put it away. Um, he, he made some innovations in the poetic line um, that are unlike any before him. After Shakespeare, the, um, this may not mean much to most of you here, but Shakespeare was writing in what we call iambic pentameter. It's a five beat line. Um, not always rhyming cu couplets. Those of you who did um, Chaucer know that Chaucer wrote in couplets all the time. But he was, Chaucer was writing in iambic pentameter. Da 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 Five beats per line. That's his major. You never read it. If you've been hearing me read poetry, I never go. Da 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 da. I, I will never read a line going, Thou master me, God give me. I will not. That's the rhythm, that's the beat, but it's an underline when it's a main, like music. You read poetry rhetorically for its meaning. When, when you're supposed to, you run on a line. You don't stop at the end of the line because the line ends. If, it's, if, if there's a stop, you'll pause. Otherwise, you'll go on because poets write like musicians. They have a keen ear for music. So the, the musical element and its association with emotions is not small for poetry. You all know that. But the traditional line up until Hopkins' time was iambic pentameter. It's five, five feet. did was go back to Anglican poetry with, with strong strength. So 
the, 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 um, the Anglo-Saxon early verse consisted of um, four heavy accents, two on either side. And alliteration means a stress on a, the first syllable of a word usually. Um, foolish, that friend, you know, who, something else. So you hit those accents as a strong beat. So you could have six or seven syllables in a foot. Like you could have six or seven foot with one stress. In Henry, you couldn't. You, you'd have um, um, two syllables, two syllables, two syllables. There are obviously variations, but but that's the traditional line Robert. up until the 19th century. Robert. Because after Shakespeare, um, nobody can do what Shakespeare did. I mean, he just, he perfected the line. Um, he's so great. What Hopkins did was change the line because he went back to an ancient Anglo-Saxon meter with heavy beats and incorporated it into and a, a traditional line. So he did something nobody else did, but it also makes for difficulties because he does things with language that are so different. Okay? So just know that. So, great innovator, but he also created difficulties for readers. And we're going to be reading his most difficult book. Okay? Hopkins didn't write for seven years after he entered the priesthood because he felt that it was a temptation to him. He was so moved by what happened to this group of nuns when they left Germany. They were forced to give up their lands and cross. They were crossing the North Sea when a storm hit. And he was so moved by reading this story that he sat down after a seven-year hiatus and wrote this poem. Okay. The first part of it is, a, is an expression of his love and fear of God that God is the master of things. And he's going to describe the shipwreck, the storm, and I started again. Um, the first half of it is going to describe the shipwreck and what's happening and the struggle of this one particular nun. And um, during the writing of this poem, he's going to, Doc, would you stop? I dumped oh, the water. <laughs> um, during the writing of this poem, he experiences a crisis. Um, it's a sort of crisis. It's interesting. We've talked about, you know, the supernatural love. An older woman is recounting this moment when she was four years old. When nothing happened, she pricks her finger. It's a little bit like that, that, that um, Hopkins is writing about this experience. In the writing of the poem, he's not facing a storm. He's not being driven by winds, he's not freezing. He's recalling this moment, but in the writing of this poem, he undergoes a spiritual crisis. So it's the sort of thing that very often we experience. Something could be going on in our life that means absolutely nothing in, the, in terms of the world. You can have a daughter going to school, you know, and not much is happening, and she can undergo a crisis, so can a parent. So it's that sort of thing, okay? Just hold on to that. So even though they're gonna be difficulties in understanding the, the poem. This is Hopkins, Jesuit priest, um, shortly after his conversion, returning to poetry. Okay. I'm just going to read a few stanzas each week. 
until we get through the record of Deutschland. I'm going to try to make comments as I go along just to try to help people keep in it, but I'm going to try to keep them to a minimum. The first part, record the Deutschland. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway of the sea. He's the strand, he holds the world together, um, he controls the sea. There's nothing that he made that he's not in control of. Even if there's a storm, he's allowing it. It's his creation. The world strand, sway of the sea, Lord of living and dead. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade, what with dread thy doing. And thou dost touch me afresh, over again I feel thy finger and find thee. So he made him. But there are these moments when you feel such a fear of your own sins or of your God, that it's like he undoes you. You know, we have these moments of doubt. It's not just a young girl. You can have them when you're 75 and approaching your end. I did say yes, O oh, at lightning and last rod. Thou heardest me truer than tongue confess thy terror, O oh Christ, O oh God. Thou knowest the walls, altar, and hour and night, the swoon of a heart, but the sweep and the hurl of thee trod hard down with a whore of height. And the midriff a strain with leaning of, laced with the fire of strength. Um, God knew him when he took his vows at an altar. And he knew how shaken he was to commit himself. Um, so nobody knows how, how deep the strains are, laced with fire of stress. The frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind, where was a, where was a place, where could he go, where could he hide? And fled, I whirled out wings that spell and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. My heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, I bold to boast. To flash from the flame, to the flame then tower from the grace to the grace. So while he's being uh, flung about from the tarry that he feels looking at Christ and the heights that he goes to and the depths that he goes to, he still knows that he is like a dove, um, carrier-witted, um, dove-winged. This is the last stanza we'll read tonight, stanza four. I am soft sift in an hourglass. I love that at the wall. Picture an hourglass, okay? You know that the sand closest to the end, or the edge, is firm. But at the center, that sand falls. So it's a description, I, certainly I know for me, I don't know for, and I'm assuming for most of you, that however firm we feel in our appearances to a social world, we know at the center of our being there is this profoundly deep weakness. But it doesn't take anything. It can be socially, when we say stupid things or do what's easy socially, and nobody's gonna pick it up. And it may seem fine, but there is this profound weakness. It's why we turn to Christ. I am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast, 
but mind with emotion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fall. I steady as a water in a well, to a poise, to a pain, but roped with always, all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the vole, a vein of the gospel proffer, a pressure, a principle, Christ's gift. I'll read one more. So he, he is aware of this grave weakness, um, but he carries Christ everywhere with him. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight, wafting him out of it, and glow, glory, and thunder. Kiss my hand to the dapple with damson west. That's one of those things we saw in the wind hover where, where Hopkins will combine four adjectives. Dapple, dawn, drawn, falcon. Dapple, drawn, drawn, falcon. It's one word because he knows that one adjective never can describe a bird. Four adjectives won't do it, but dapple, dawn, drawn, falcon. It's a complex. It's a whole host of things that are attributed to that falcon. Remember in the wind, wind hover when he hovered. Um, that's an Anglo-Saxon um, usage of poet, the poetic line. He does it a lot. Here he's done it, doing it again. Kiss my hand to the dappled with damson west. Since though he's under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stress. It has to be in stress. The stress of it will go in. Stressed, for I greet him the days I meet him and bless him when I understand. Stop. We'll keep going. He's describing um, the power, the majesty of God who controls the world. He's relating himself in the way he's been created as a human being, put together, and the stresses that he carries because of this devotion to Christ. Okay. Okay. Let's let's get to um, John Paul. I want to just um, um, read two things. One is a reminder. Um, I was telling Anne when I when she got here early. I'm going to tell you just because it's it's sort of anecdotal, but it shows the cast of my mind tonight, because you're gonna hear some dark things tonight. You know that we finished up our work at St. Francis and um, with um, the Gospel and Revelation, and we talked about coming back to do some literature because the whole thing has been literature until the very end. We talked about doing Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice probably, which is her lightest book, she knows it. Mansfield Park is actually, I think, her greatest work. It's it's got a gravity that Pride and Prejudice don't have, but if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know what a delightful book it is. And some of the people were glad to do it because they love Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. If you've read Charles Dickens, you know that Tale of Two Cities is probably the one book kids read in high school. Great Expectations, I think, is his, I think, is his greatest work because it's very sober, and I don't want to give it away. Um, but a young man grows up, like so many Americans, poor, and he enters a world that's made possible because of a benefactor. He doesn't know who it is because he's received this money, and it allows him to step into this um, higher social class. And he gets proud of himself, the way people do when they move up the ladder, particularly in America. So it's, 
even though it's about England, it, it speaks very much to our own culture because lots of people start out with very, very little here and climb up. Great expectations about that, great expectations. I'm not gonna give away the story, um, but it's expressive of almost every human being when you enter the social world and you want to better yourself, you want to have a better life, you know, and what happens. So we talked about doing those two. It struck me tonight how appropriate it would be to do Jane Austen, Dickens' Great Expectation, and then do Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. If any of you know that book, you know that Marlowe, the, one of the narrators of so many of uh, Conrad's books, goes from Europe to Africa where the mining for, um, for um, what's the, um, ivory takes place. I remember this correctly. And he encounters a man, he went there to seek out this man because this man is a sort of image of the modern entrepreneur um, trying to take advantage of a mercantile trade. I think it's ivory in this case. I can't tell you what happens. What he encounters there is a horror, an absolute horror. And what we realize as a reader is that this whole advanced, um, beautiful, decorous, um, socially respected European world rests on this cannibalism. It's a little bit like what um, Faulkner did in Go Down Moses when the young Ike, it, it's, it's the chosen one, Isaac, remember in the Bible is the chosen one. When Isaac discovers that um, the land that he's inherited has a history that makes him ashamed. He discovers something about himself, horrors in his past, and we realize this the way we would if we were reading uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, that this lovely, beautiful, polite society rests on some disorder, slavery in the South, this um, ivory trade, and you know. So I thought how perfect to do Jane Austen, <laughs> who gave me my eyes, Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, because in Charles Dickens there's this profound experience of disillusionment, the great expectations. They aren't what he thought they would be. And then end on Heart of Darkness. Because if you put those three novels together, Jane Austen, Dickens, Conrad, you're watching us approach the modern world. With all of its appearances of glamour and stability and wealth and, you know, and, and learning that everything isn't as it seems to be. So that's where we're going tonight. <laughs> so, if anybody would like to be excused, don't be embarrassed. <laughs> um, I wanted to read, I wanted to do two things before we look at this list tonight, before we turn to it. I'm going to go back to Revelation. It's this passage that I've read to you before. It's in the middle of Revelation. Now remember, one of the most important things to keep in your mind when you're reading Revelation is this. In the Gospels, we're with Christ. Matthew, John, Mark, and you know, are all telling, they're all giving accounts of what happened when Christ was here. So in the Gospels, we're in a, in a present in-between time. He's not gone to the Father. We don't know what happened after that. We don't have an account from heaven, right? We know what happened here. We've got the synoptics, the three Gospels telling us, and then John. In the book of Revelation, we're given an account of things from end times. Everything's over. 
The final answer there, Christ has defeated the devil. The outcome of that war is clear. It's known. There's, there's no doubt about it, unless we doubt God. Because from God's words, and I don't think God deceives or fools, he's all goodness, and that's our belief in our God. He doesn't fool around. So we have it, this was one of the major points of Fide Ratio. John Paul says again and again and again, we've had the final word. Everything's been revealed to us. We know it. There cannot be a doubt about that. Not from God. That's it. It's settled. Um, in Revelation, we get a story from the perspective of final ends. For those of you who did Dante with me, you know that. Dante does the same thing. We go to heaven and hell. We sing things as they're fixed. They're settled. The people in heaven are there. The people in hell are there. So we're learning to see things of this world through a perspective of final ends. So we know the nature of sin. When we go through hell, we're seeing sin as it is. It's fixed. If you have any doubts about it, you read it and you learn to see what sin is because that's it. Is that clear? It's absolutely crucial to see that. Dante's Divine Comedy gives us a picture from a perspective of final ends. The purgatory is a middle, it's from hell to purgatory to heaven. Purgatory is a middle term, but the outcome is already settled. settled. Anybody in purgatory is going to heaven. Nobody in purgatory is going to go back. So even if they're not in heaven, their future is settled. They're paying off sins that they didn't pay for in life. <coughs> But their ultimate end is settled. There's no doubt about it. So everything Dante does is to show us our world, everything we do here, concretely. It's like he was giving a description of this class. Just exactly the way we are to each other. Except we see what's going on from the perspective of final ends. Everything is uncovered. All of our appearances, all of our manners, all of the things that we cover up, they're uncovered. We see hell, the sins for what they are, and we see grace for what it is in its final form. Okay. Revelation is exactly like that. We're, giving, we're given a vision by, from John about how things are in their final form. Okay. So it, it allows us to see the whole thing. <coughs> what happened before Christ came, what happened when he was here, what happens after he left. It's all unfolded. We can't have any questions about the outcome of that battle between good and evil. Christ defeated the devil. Is there any way he could not have? The devil is a privation. He turns from... He, evil can never defeat God. Evil is a privation. It's not a thing of an, in its own. So that battle was fought. It's won. Okay? In the 13th chapter, remember I gave you this verse. It says... This is John. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems. That is, remember, seven is complete and so is ten. He's giving us a perfect parody of Christ. If somebody's going to go against Christ, they're going to be a parody of him because there's nothing else. What is there besides God? There's nothing outside of God. So if anything comes into existence that opposes him, it's going to be a parody. It's going to be its opposite. So the, the seven, the number seven, means complete. Ten is a complete number. These are images, parodies of the real thing. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns, and a blasphemous name upon its head. 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon is Satan. This beast is an image of all those powers gathered to oppose the church. All the material forces of evil in this world. They, it takes its authority from Satan. That's the first beast, okay? A few lines down. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. The first one out of the sea, this one out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds, whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. That's exactly what prophets do. Okay, so that second beast stand to the real prophets the way the beast does as a parody of Christ. These are prophets of this new world that the first beast is going to bring into existence. Is that clear? First beast is the worldly powers gathered against God. The second is a group of, an image of prophets who prophesy. So we talked about this. Who are the prophets of this new world that our modern world is going to bring in? You can name the prophets. All these people who appeal to people's wounds, which are real, and tell them, if we only do this, we'll bring in this world. It's heaven and earth. That's right out of Marx. Remember, Marx wants to, is presenting an argument saying, if we get past these class wars, we will have a heaven on earth. Remember the word for that was imminent, imminent to bring down. We, we will make the kingdom here. So what I wanted to begin with um, were a couple of statements here. We know from biblically from the passages that I just read that the outcome of the battle between good and evil is settled at least from Christ's perspective. We're still engaged in it here. Every one of us faces our, the worst parts of ourselves every day. We have to deal with our own sins. That's why we keep turning to Christ um, to carry on this battle. Um, but here's the, here's the interesting thing. In section 47 in Fide Ratio on page 63, John Paul says this, this is section 47, section 47, page 63. It should also be borne in mind that the role of philosophy itself has changed in modern culture. Remember, we passed from a medieval Christian world with a, with a philosophy that people would have called compatible with Christianity. We passed from that philosophy into the modern world, and philosophy since that time has changed. From universal wisdom and learning, it's been gradually reduced to one of the many fields of human knowing. Indeed, in some ways, it has been consigned to a wholly marginal role. The philosophy of being, being, it's, you know, I am that am, of ontology, of studying being, is gone. It's marginal. Other forms of rationality have acquired an even higher profile, making philosophical learning appear all the more peripheral. 
These forms of rationality are directed not towards the contemplation of truth and the search for the ultimate goal and meaning of life, but instead as instrumental reason. That is, they want to serve a practical end. The end is not truth. It's control over nature. We've talked about that, to master it, to, to make it serve us. Technology, all of these things of the modern world. These forms are directed not towards contemplation of truth and the search for the ultimate goal and meaning of life, but instead as instrumental reason. They are directed actually or potentially towards the promotion of utilitarian ends, towards enjoyment or power. So as philosophy has turned away from the truth, as it separated itself from scripture, um, we've inherited um, a dichotomy, a, a dualism. Faith on the one hand and a reason which has no connection with faith. The whole purpose of what we're doing in this work we're doing together is to pull those two things together. The whole purpose of what I'm doing is to try to affirm reason that is absolutely essential to our faith as Catholics. We've already had that image, you know, that it's like two wings of a bird. To the extent that we're not working to improve our powers of mind, to use reason to answer the disorders of our age, we're not fully living our faith. John Paul makes clear there's no greater power than faith because it rests in God. God's not fooling around. He's the ultimate end of things. It's a greater power than reason. But reason is this important gift we have in the natural order. It's important for us to take care of. Okay? So philosophy thinking has become more and more utopian, idealistic, or pragmatic. But it has severed itself from faith, and it works on its own. His concern is, he says very clearly, the church has got to, to monitor that faith. It does everything it can to encourage people to use their reason to learn. But when that learning begins to make conclusions that are at odds with scripture, that is with the ultimate truth, then the church has got to be concerned. And that's the position it takes when it's, and if you're aware of the church, you know how careful it is. It's not banging doors or hitting heads. It's, it's trying to respond in a spirit of love, truth, addressing some of the disorders of our age. And John Paul gave us this list, okay? Now two things before we, two more things before we turn to this. I want you all to look at this sheet. I, I think I sent it out, but there's copies over there called The Derivation of Law. You all have it? The Derivation of Law? Mike, are you getting, can you get some copies? If you don't have, if you don't have a copy, just hold your hand up, will you, and let Mike give you a copy? I want everybody to look at that sheet right now if you can. If, if you're a couple, share one, okay, so we don't, because I don't know how many copies we have. Um, take a look at that sheet, because this is a, a crucial light on a problem of our age. Does everybody have it? Take a look. The thesis of Benedict's, here I really want your attention right now. 
The thesis of Benedict's Regenberg Address is that the loss of a sense of logos, the loss of a sense of logos has crippled the modern world. The um, Islamic world has no sense of a logos and the fundamentalist Christian has no sense of a logos. Remember for the, the Protestant world by and large looks at nature as corrupt. The consequences of the fall according to Luther and Calvin were complete. Nature is depraved. You cannot turn to it because it's foul. It's unregenerate. Okay? So they lost the sense of the logos. John, in the beginning was, in his words, in the beginning was the word, the logos. In the beginning was the logos. The logos permeates nature, according to John. It's there. He's the means of creation. He permeates it everywhere. Okay? If you say that nature's corrupt, that logos no longer has a place. You're left in a world purely in terms of faith with no help from reason anymore. Faith and reason do not come together again. Okay? That's the predicament that Benedict's going to address in the next piece that we read. Okay? Although John Paul is doing everything he can at fide ratio, faith and reason. He's doing everything he can to recall us to recover a healthy philosophy, a philosophic tradition. That is to recover a sense of the logos in nature. Every, almost every work we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, all the lyrics, the poems we read, are expressions of that logos, a bird, a four-year-old girl. Now take a look at the derivation of law. Islam is going to take the position, and so does the modern Protestant, certainly the fundamentalist, that's called voluntarist. It's a voluntarist position. It takes the position that God's will is principle. Not his knowledge, not his wisdom, his will. If he wills to do something one moment, he can undo it and do something again. Even some Islamic philosophers believe that he could do evil and it'd be okay. Because they make the will higher than anything. That's called a volunteer's position, a volunteer's philosophy. Benedict's argument is going to be it's, it's corrupted part of the Christian world. It's fundamental to the Islamic world. That's where we're going to go next. Okay? But here I want you to see, according to the Catholic tradition, going back, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, Boethius, St. Thomas, that whole tradition believed that the ultimate source of man's reason was God's reason, with a capital R. That God was nothing if not intelligence. There's no way you could separate his intellect from his will. They're one in him. So here in this sheet you can see a, a scheme showing that. His eternal law was decreed for the entire universe. Think about it this way. When you look out of the world, you see stars and planets flying out of their orbits. Do we see chaos? I mean, one of the strangest things for me, but it's just, to me, it's one of the absurdities of science. You cannot look at the universe and not find order everywhere. Wherever you find order, what does that imply? Intelligence. How did that order come to be? You can't have that degree of intelligence by accident. There's one of our arguments, put it on the board. You cannot have that degree of complexity of order without intelligence. That's not a matter of chance. There's too much going on. 
So at the heart of creation is God's eternal law. Paul will say there's this law written in the soul of everyone, and how can it not be? We're made in God's image. There's something lawful in us. Now hold on to that. There's something lawful in every one of us. It's from that law that we have principles of morality and that we have our laws in nature. If you go down the line, you'll see. The natural law is the presence of law in the natural world, created world. It's from that natural law that we derive written laws, positive law, the laws on the books. When the laws on the books are at odds with or are not in conformity with natural law, what happens? Peace, order? No, things fall apart. That was Plato's argument before Christ came into the world. Plato said there's an order to the soul. That was the great argument of the Republic. There's this order. When political regimes create regimes that are at odds with the nature of the soul, they become despotic, destructive. Okay? One of the best examples of natural law that I know of, and I think most people are aware of natural law, is from a pagan. His name was um, Sophocles. He wrote a play called Antigone. If you know that play, you know that the play's about a young woman who wants to bury her brother because she loves him. Creon, who's the king, says she cannot because her brother rebelled against him. And he said, anybody who rebels against the, the state, here we are, religion, the state, right there in the beginning. This is before Christ. Anybody who rebels against the state cannot be buried within state grounds. Her argument to him is to appeal to eternal law, not the state's laws. It's the love of her brother. And she, she references her argument to the eternal law, the law of the gods. It's one of the most perfect examples of natural law that we have. It's because she fought for that that she will die and Creon will turn out to be this awful tyrant. It's, it's one of the early examples of the, these endless perennial problems between a higher law and the state already before Christ comes into the world or any of these other things. So one of the things that marks a Catholic tradition from the other traditions of the world is this belief in natural law. That laws that are out of tune with natural law will, will do nothing but cause problems. What happened to slavery in the 19th century? We went to war, millions of Americans died. Our belief that is that abortion is wrong. It's our sin today, it's ours, it's all of our sins. Our belief is that that's at odds with God's law. My belief is because it is, at some point we're gonna have an awful battle. I don't know how this is gonna resolve. But so long as we have laws on the laws, that is the use of our reason to produce law, so long as we're using reason in that way, we're at odds with God and his law. So hold on to this, okay? It's called the natural law tradition. It's fundamental to the Christian world. Um, in the Reformation, it broke off, um, and that's where the, I've been calling the shipwreck took place that has led us to these problems today. It's important that we recover that. It's important that we rec recover our uses of reason so we can answer these, this first beast and the second beast.
Now here's what I want to pass on before we turn to these problems. Last night I was thinking about the class and I was in shock, and I'm not exaggerating. I, I said to Suzanne, tell me what's wrong in China. What, what did they hold? Serious question. I mean, it was a serious question for me. And I was asking just before she wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> she was kind. She was actually really good last night. I, I was not. Um, tell me what China holds good. Okay? I don't, I don't want to go there, but tell me. Because I was, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, in America, I'm saying this, it's going to be too bald, but I hope you'll forgive me for not nuancing this a little bit better right here, but in America, what's wrong? I'm asking that, I don't want to go, please don't, I don't want to push this right now, because I want to get here, but let me make my point. What's wrong in America? Abortion's not wrong. Same-sex marriage is not wrong. Euthanasia's not wrong. Suicide is not wrong. Murder, in some sense, is not wrong. The, the principle defending murder is self-preservation. It's not because it's morally wrong. Those things are protected by what's called an, the um, social contract theory. I won't do this if you won't do this to me. <clears throat> Where is there in America, since the Reformation and a scientific world, is there any sense that there's a moral law in human beings that we need to be careful of? I just named all those things. They're all right. They're all okay. Has there ever been a, a civilization that existed that didn't have some kind of a moral code saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong? Almost every one of those things in America today, this is how bleak it is, is not wrong. Right? Abortion, divorce, contraceptions, sex before marriage, homosexual. And Euthanasia. If you argue it's Christian Taliban. Sorry? If you argue the term that they throw at you is Christian Taliban. Christian Taliban, yeah, yeah. The only thing that's wrong for the utopian world, the, the view that's come into existence since the Reformation and the Copernican Revolution, the only thing that's wrong is Christianity because it condemns those things. I hope everybody sees that. Dostoevsky said, Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky said, 19th century. If God is dead, everything's permissible. The only reason you outlaw murder is because it flies in the face of self-preservation, not because it's a morally evil act. Because today you know, if somebody is a killer, you know that killers are let back out on the street a month after they're in jail. Because the understanding is, whoever that, per whoever that person was who killed somebody, he did it because of heredity or environment. Bad parents, that environment, if we strip, this is Marx and the utopian view that I'm trying to put out here. If we, if we would only get that straight, get all these class distinctions or Christian beliefs out of the way and we create this perfect world, there will be no murderers, there will be no evil. That's the modern world. It do, in my mind, where I'm going, sorry for this, it doesn't get any darker. The books that we, for anybody who is foolish enough to continue with this. We'll do Jane Austen, Dickens, and we'll get to Heart of Darkness. Faulkner, go down Moses, young Ike, the chosen one, will give up his property, his rights to property, the great claim in the South, right? It's a plantation social world. When he discovers something horrific about his great-grandfather, 
great, great grandfather. The great artists are the ones who are helping us to see ourselves and not give in to despair. The answer is not despair. The answer is not despair. The answer is trusting Christ. It's our faith in Him. Okay? So, I just, so look back. Babylon had the code of, the code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi, right? Jerusalem, Carthage, Athens, Rome. There's not been a, a major city that hasn't rested on some kind of moral sense. All of them. Get to the modern world with science, because Freud tried to use science and make the case that all of us are governed by these perversities. They're determined. We can't, they're fixed in our nature. Polymorphous, perverse, the Oedipus complex, things like that. So science for him got us to these perversities. Freud knew an awful lot about what we can call the animal unconscious, the somatic unconscious. Part of us is, is um, material human beings. Because for him as a scientist, his ground was matter. He knew nothing, nothing, nothing about the spiritual unconscious. Go to Sophocles, go to Shakespeare, go to Dante, go to Gugliel. They know more about, go to the woman who wrote Supernatural Love about this four-year-old girl. Go to those people and you'll find there's a lot going on in the spiritual unconscious that not a lot of scientists see because they're limited by a materialist view of the world. Only in matter exists. So we've entered, we've entered a dark time. So those of you who have been patient enough for the last two weeks asking, how do we, how do we evangelize? <laughs> well, the first thing you do is buck up and what, what were Christ's word to Peter a week ago? You know, you've been doing everything for yourself and able to do it, but a time will come when somebody will address, address you and you'll have to go where you don't want to go. So if any of you came into this, these meetings, this work that we're doing with rose-colored glasses, let me help you take them off. <laughs> anyway, that's my opening, okay? Um, I think I've gotten as dark as I can. I hope, I hope you hear behind all of this is this great love that Paul had. He, Paul didn't want to leave the world. It's not because he didn't. He loved Christ more than anything. He wanted to stay here because he wanted to help. We've got this work to do. Um, so let's take a measure of how really, I mean, what we're up against, particularly in our world. Okay. Let me stop there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to these things, okay? Where do we, so, we did, we did, we did the first, you know, material and relative eclecticism and storesman, right? Yes. We did them. Okay, what's scientism? Wait, let me stop. Any, any comments or questions before we? On what you just said? Yeah, this dark, this cheery introduction I just gave you. Um, I have a comment. Um, but doesn't our society believe then that we're going to do the right thing and that's what the moral code is embedded in each person then? Of course that doesn't work all the time but isn't that the belief? Is it not based on that? What is the right thing in our world? I mean how do you square what I just said let's say abortion euthanasia I and mean, go wherever you want uh, 
when people are saying do the right thing because I think they mean it. What's their notion of the right thing when they say that? Their own beliefs. The law? Yeah, yes. Chuck, go ahead, I don't finish it. You have to ask. Them. Have to ask them? Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. What is the right it's thing? Relative. Sorry? It's relative. It'll be some combination of these things we're looking at. I mean, somewhere they'll go to one of these modern beliefs. Well, I mean, to put the, I'm going to, this, I don't like, I do not like black and white mindsets, but everything I'm doing right now is black and white. Um, if you, if you, if you look at the, the principles or the starting points of most of the people who say do the right thing, it'll be some combination of this. It'll probably be more along the lines of, for those of you who don't know what this is, the social contract theorist. Social contract theory began with Hobbes, 17th century, Rousseau, and Locke. Those are the great social contract theorists. I mean Hobbes, who is probably the, well, the founder and probably the, the, one of the leading voices, certainly going into Rousseau and um, Locke. Hobbes maintained that if, if we look at ourselves as we exist in nature, we're all in a state of war. If we're left to ourselves, we'll kill each other. So his basic belief is that we're animals, that we'll kill ourselves, that there's something instinctively in us. The two governing motives for our actions are fear and self-preservation. We will kill another, protect ourselves, or defend ourselves so we don't lose our lives. So he said, in our natural condition, we're in a state of war. And the only way we come out of this is by making a social contract. To say, I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. So doing the right thing generally means a, a social convention. It's a made-up convention. It will, no, it will not go to what we're talking about, to this divine law or this divine reason and divine <coughs> law and its root in natural law and the positive laws that we write. It, it won't refer to that because people don't generally believe. Somebody who's Jewish will, I mean, this is really interesting because it's just amazing to I me mean, to think about that. If you look at every culture that's ever existed, people have laws, they have some codes. It's, the, it's in the Jewish tradition that God appears and says, here are my laws. And he formulates them with absolute clarity. And they have a divine sanction. So they're not just human constructs anymore. They're from God. So in the Judaic tradition, we've got a sense of law that has a greater weight because the origins of it are God, Yahweh. Christ comes in to fulfill that law, not do away with it, to fulfill it and bring a divine love to what he does with it. Gives up his life and he asks us to do the same. So how many people have that sense behind them when they say do the right thing? You know, um, the right thing for a lot of people I think is more in terms of what we're talking about. You get along, you're nice, um, sometimes you make tough decisions because you go against people. Does it go to this depth? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, that's a, it's a hard, you know, how do you make judgments about that? <coughs> Let's go to this, because um, we, we left off with scientism. What is, I really want to get through these, because we, the, the ones at the end, um, what am I calling it? Egalitarianism, ideology, and I, and I meant to put in there sexual, sexual orientations, because that's going to get tough. 
that's 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 going to get close to home for I think all of us. I'm sorry, I didn't put it up there because it wasn't. Yeah, it was just down, yeah. Down just scientism. What is scientism? What is scientism? Exactly. Science is the only kind of knowledge we have. If things can't be explained in terms that fit whatever the scientific paradigm is, it's not real. It's not a real knowledge. Scientism means science knows all the answers to things. Any that, that side of that is irrational, unreliable, we can't depend on it. So scientism is like any ism. It, it, it gives a higher status to science than it can have. Because there are lots of different ways of knowing. There's different kinds of knowledge. There's poetic knowledge. There's philosophic knowledge. You know, there's different. Reason is a rich, rich thing. It, it, it cannot be confined to empirical modes of knowing or materialist ways of knowing. For the, for the scientist who says only matter exists and something that can't be proven by scientific terms is not real, it's not a real form of knowledge, is reducing reason, it shrinks reason to this, to this thing of utility or, you know. And it's becoming more prevalent in our world. Lots of people think that if, if, science, if science doesn't answer it, it's, it's not answerable. You can't depend on it, it's not reliable. Okay? Pragmatism. What's pragmatism? Whatever works. Yeah, flush it out. Can you give an example, Jeff? <laughs> Give a, what's wrong, what's, let me put it, what's wrong with pragmatism? What's wrong? Well, uh, it's a matter of <clears throat> who's it work for? You know, um, if it works for me, fine. That sounds suspiciously like relativism right now. Right? Yeah. It's relativistic. <laughs> Um, you know, as there, there's no there's no standard that determines what works and what doesn't. Work. There's not ju no judgment of good or bad. Speak up, Doc. He's there's no judgment of good or bad. If it works, it works. It's pragmatic. Yeah. Um, yeah. It might be a bad thing, but if it yeah. works. By the way, I hope you know. I mean, I'm going to be pushing. You, I'm going to be playing devil's advocate because very often. We think we've got an answer to it. If we can't explain it, if we can't show what's wrong with it, I don't think we understand what's going on. So I'm, I'm going to try to push everywhere I can. I hope you all know that. It's not because I'm trying to be. So when I looked pragmatism up, because I was, I was curious about it, it said that it values experience over fixed principles and action over doctrine. So the idea that, yes, like anything that is workable, so it's action. It's all about what we can do. If we can do it, then it's good. Which, that starts to get into some dicey territory. Yeah. Um, without passion judgment on the said thing. So it's about... Or they say, because it doesn't work, it's bad. I mean, they pass a judgment. Or because it doesn't work, then it's not valuable. Who else? I know that you, I know that all of you know these things, so I really want to give you a chance to pull them out because all of you. Yeah.
on whatever they're selling and trying to convince the, the people, the audience that they're talking to. And, and yet relativism to me is also the same, it's just not as strong. It's something that's laid out. And you look at this way, they look at that way. But somebody's pragmatic, that's how I'm looking at it. It's just someone more a leadership role, something very driven. It's got to work. I mean, I think Suzanne. It's got energy. Because if it doesn't work, somebody's going to say you're not being very practical. You know, if, if it doesn't work, you're not. So anything that doesn't, so <clears throat> to be pragmatic means it's got to work. And if it doesn't work, somebody's going to say, see how idealistic you are, unpragmatic, unpractical you are. It's got to work. My question is, what's wrong with that? How do you answer that? It's a, it's a drift. It's not more than time. And that actually, you don't need ethics here for this practice because the point of ethics is to follow a course of action that sometimes isn't pragmatic. For example, good, abortion is pragmatic. You don't want to have a baby, oh, you have an abortion, good. you took care of that problem. Right. But it opens up all kinds of. Good. Yeah, good for you, Ann. I'm so glad. Whenever we can get it to an example, it'll just help all of us. Because it, it illustrates what everybody's been saying. You know, if, if you've got a problem, I remember Suzanne, Suzanne, who's lived her life doing everything she can not to call attention to herself. She put a sticker on the bumper several years ago, I think from Mother Teresa. Poverty, what's, how's it go, Doc? It's a poverty to think that it's a poverty to, you know, and somebody, I think she told me that some guy walked out to the car, I think she was in a parking lot, and came out and was absolutely outraged to her. It was a Stranger. It was a woman. You took? No, it was a woman. Let me, a man, hold on, just hold on, just wait a minute. A man came up and said, I think that his daughter, a woman, had, had a something that was going to put her life in danger so that he defended her on that basis. So he was absolutely outraged because of somebody he loved. Because that was not what you do. Her life was at stake. The most practical thing to do would be to, you know. And you know the churches stand on that. Churches, I mean, it does, it, it's not a black-white thing, but it does hold to a ground. There's a dignity to a child. Help, if you can, persuade a woman you can adopt it, give the child. I mean, there's lots to do to, to protect a child's life because um, a child can't speak for it. One of the things that really outrages me, slaves could talk for themselves. They could resist. They could run away. They could fight their masters in the 19th century. What child has a voice when he's in the womb? That really bothers me. You know, we're, we're a country that says, do the right thing. Do the right thing. And we, we laud people's ability to speak up. We do not want to see somebody interfere with somebody's right to speak. And we take away that right of a child. He cannot speak for, you know. The problem um, that particular example, though, is that most people in the skip really the most important issue that has to be addressed. It's very easy to win on. It's the question whether it's the person in the first place. Right. Yeah, which to me is a, which to me is a dodge. That's not a monkey. It's not a Table. Well, it's not. Crazy it's not an alien. Every every oak tree has an oak seed. It doesn't grow out of a pine seed. 
every human being had its words. It's a human, it's not something else. It's, it's another indication of how we've lost the sense of beginning and ends. There's not an alien in that womb. Just because it's not fully formed doesn't mean it's not human any more than an oak seed is not is something else because it's not a pine. It's still an oak seed. But anyway, another example just in a more pragmatic way. Could a plumber ever, I, 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 I don't want to take away from Anne's example because to me it's perfect, but can any plumber who, who sees his work purely in pragmatic terms, could he ever fix a faucet leak if he didn't have some theory about the way gravity or, you know, chains of things work? If he doesn't have an idea in his head, he'll never be able to fix that pipe or electrician. So for somebody to make an, an argument and say, you know, it, to be purely pragmatic because it works, nobody can be purely pragmatic. All of us can only be pragmatic because we've got some idea, some theory or principle, some what was standard. I mean, there's got to be something there against which to measure or we couldn't do those things. What about nihilism? Is that what about nihilism? What is nihilism? Nothing matters? Yeah. Nothing has meaning. Yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? Everything has meaning. There's a bunch of things Okay. Mary, back it up. Nobody's, nobody here is going to, but make an argument. Make it concrete. Because you're talking with somebody who says, you're full of baloney. You say everything has meaning. I've said, Defend it. What would you say to somebody who says, no, nothing has meaning? How would you defend it? I, I said so. You what? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I doing this? I would, I would Why am I doing this? <laughs> I, would, I guess I would start just to save time. Uh, show me something that doesn't have meaning. I would ask them, show me something that doesn't have meaning. Like okay. they might say this book or this Whatever. I'm going to I'm going to play devil because you're not answering the question right now. You're avoiding it. I'm going to come up to you and say, "Here's a rock." I'm, I'm going to try to pick. I mean, I'm just flying here with you. So, here's a rock. Convince me this rock has meaning. What do you say? I throw the rock out. <laughs> I was going to go there. I could hit him with a rock. <laughs> Come, no, flesh it out, because that's what, I mean, that's exactly right, but flesh it, can you, what would you, flesh it out, can you? Without throwing it, because we've said, we can't beat somebody over the head, you can't throw rocks at people, so you pick up a rock, I say, you say, everything's got meaning, and I pick up a rock and say, tell me there's meaning in this rock. And so what do you say? I mean, what do you do? By the way, any of, any of you who've seen the movie Departures should have a really good answer for this one. Well, give me, does it have that? Wait, wait. Sorry? You asked me, does, does this rock have matter? Does it, can, you keep, can you sense it with your five senses? He's going to say, of course there's matter, but this is a rock. It doesn't have any meaning. It's a rock. Who well, cares? You, could, you can make it into something. You can make a bridge, start a bridge with it, or, or, or a, some kind of building or something. Look, it's not but, but it's so relevant. It is what it is. It can't change it. 
He's going to say it doesn't have any meaning. You can't change it. It's meaningless. It's going to well, remain I'll meaningless. I'll say I think it means something. Shut but off. explain it. Defend Shut it. It means something how? I mean, you shift the burden of proof for one thing. You, it's all taken off a lot of the faith itself when he rejects the meaning, when everything in evidence. But people do. But people do. Right, right. But he's the one who needs to do the proof. That's my first one. Yeah, you did that last week. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure. I want an argument here. Mike, you had something. Melody, what if 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 somebody said nothing means anything in the world? What would you? I mean, you don't have to take my example, but you may have something the wrong. You may have your own. What's your response? Wait, hold on. Why are we not? Wait, I don't hear you. Is your speaker on? She said she thinks so. <laughs> yes. What's going on here? Reading her lips. I don't know. Your volume down. You're, just can speak up right now, can you? Yes. Can you hear me now? There. Can. I don't know. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. I would say just because something doesn't have meaning to you doesn't mean it's meaningless because somewhere someone could have a purpose for whatever you're talking about, and by you discounting its meaning, you've uh, wiped out their opinion. So um, you can't discount something just because it doesn't mean anything to you. Okay, get out of it. And then I would tell them to get a life because that is the <laughs> saddest thing I have ever heard. No. So it, bring it out of the realm of a generalization, an abstraction, and make it concrete, can you? Uh, this is the hardest one because someone who has thinks that life doesn't have any meaning, I mean, what is the hope there? That would mean that civilization couldn't go on because What's there's no for, hope yeah. for the future. It wipes out all hope. Everything. And so their philosophy, if, they, if their philosophy were real or true, then... Um, Life would have ended a long time ago. Yeah, you have no reason to live. Right. Somebody, we've we've seen the movie Departures. What happens? To, I mean, we've all, most of us in this room have seen it. Not a small thing is made of stones. If you remember it, it ends with a stone. Uh, by the way, I wasn't thinking of that, Mary. When I was just thinking, I was trying to find something that obviously didn't have it. What, why, is, why are stones important in that movie? What meaning do those stones have in that movie? Do you all remember? I have not seen the movie. I know, but I'm hoping that... It's a... Go on Netflix and watch this movie. It's called Departures. It's a beautiful, very human movie. Why do stones... What's, why do stones have such an important meaning in the Bible? I'm going to try to... I mean, I don't want to give answers. I really am trying to push you guys. In the Bible it says, hearts of stone... Why does that, or God, on this rock, I will, so let's flesh those out just for a moment, okay? Because I, I didn't, wasn't picking this, to, I really wanted to get on you, Mary, because what do you do with the stone then? In the Bible it says, hearts of stone, Christ says to Peter, on this rock. 
In the movie, what happens to stones in that movie that makes stones oh, so important? He had the stone. He was with his father at the lake when he was a little boy throwing stones. And at the end, when his father died, he thought his father didn't love him. The father had the stone in his hand. Yeah. So it brought from the early life to the... Yeah. And what was the difference between that stone early on in life and later? What was the difference? He's We're going to watch a movie again. There's going to be a test after. <laughs> oh, you guys! I don't even. You're talking to the wrong person. Yeah, and it, I mean, it just brought tears. I, I think for most of us, because it wore it wore smooth. And, and remember when he and his wife, after his wife returned, remember, there's, got to be, there's a whole meaning of behind a stone in this movie. Um, the wife returns because remember, there's such a stigma attached to um, the undertaker, position, whatever you want. That's not the right word because if you remember, he's preparing bodies to go. So it's almost more like a, it's almost more like a sacrament, you know, from our perspective. It's sacramental. If you remember the preparation when the families were there, fights broke out. I mean, they had to deal with things they didn't deal with in life. That, that he gave a beauty to a person leaving this world so that no matter what the difficulties were, you could transcend them. The families were in tears. I mean, it's just a, a beautiful movie. Anyway, um, the wife leaves him. She, this is the East. Saving face is probably the biggest code in the East. You don't do anything to humiliate or dishonor. Saving face is a big thing. She leaves him. She's so humiliated. And she comes back and he thinks everything's gonna be okay. She still wants him to leave that job. And he gets a call and he rushes off and she's with him. And she sees what it's about. And you watch this woman who went from this hardened prejudice, and you watch her, you watch a stony heart melt. The humility that comes over her, it's a chain. Anyway, when she and the husband are walking together, they're throwing stones, and he tells the story. He says, stones talk. One of the, one of the best works that I know of by a scientist, um, who had the mind of a scientist, um, what's her name, Doc? Teaching tones, teaching stones to speak, and I can't remember her name. Stones. I have to get this. A beautifully, she's a beautiful writer, and she writes she writes this book um, entitled "Teaching Stones to Talk or Speak" or something like that. It's it's beautiful. She's a scientist. She's finding meaning everywhere in nature, and she's using the example of stones in the movie. The guy's making the case that one of the ways in which people communicated a long time ago was through stones. The age, the shape, because he said they all have stories. It goes to your so I mean one of the answers to that question is, even if it's a stone, every every like every I'm gonna say every tree, every bird, wind hover, we've been, you know, what in nature, according to our view, does not speak? Hopkins, stones ringing down wells, tumbling down. 
Every poem we've read is about the logos everywhere. Stones speak. They used to use stones to communicate. That was the story. That's Eastern. Western? One. We still, though, we think of stone and permanence. We have great markers. We have, you think of mountains as being good. Some, something that is not going to be going away. Good, 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 Anne, good. And I, Susanna and I were talking about this. I was thinking because of the, you know, these disorders. It's really interesting because this stuff is so, there's, what doesn't have meaning? I mean, is one of the answers to a nihilist. What doesn't have meaning? I'll give, I'll use stones. Here's my argument. Christ said upon this rock, one of the things you have to say about a rock is that it doesn't move. The water has to go around it. Water's gonna, the fluid, the fluidity of things, you're not gonna move that rock. On this rock I will build my church. He was saying, this foundation, this is God. So he's not the founder of Athens, he's not the founder of Rome, he's not the founder of Babylon, it's not the, these founders we talked about in literature. This is God. The founder of the church is Christ. It is perfect. It's infallible. It's infallible. Its founder is, do people make mistakes? They do all the time. Peter made big one. But Christ's words are, on this rock I will found my church. Rocks don't move. Water has to go around them. Lots of people, I mean, I think somebody, it may have been Doc, and I think maybe Connie, I can't remember at the end of last meeting, we, you, we were talking about eclecticism, um, what, what Suzanne was calling a cafeteria, cafeteria style, picking and choosing, you know. Lots of Catholics live that, they pick and choose what they want to do you know, um, to, to live their faith. Christ's words to Peter, upon this rock I will build. That church is infallible. It's got God as its founder. That rock is not going to move. So there's a perfect image again of another meaning to a rock. I mean, you can, hearts of stone, break my heart, you know, in a heart of, I mean, lots of them. You know, that's actually an expression, sure. cafeteria Christians. Yeah. Right. People talk about that. Right. My husband and I are cafeteria. I don't. We pick and choose all different kinds of churches, didn't we? I don't want to do imminentism because we've done it. It's remember, imminentism means bringing the kingdom down. I gave you that quote from William Buckley. Don't. Imminentize the eschaton. Say it again. I'm not, did you all hear? Do not amenitize the eschaton. Eschaton is eschaton, final ends. Don't bring final ends down. We cannot create a heaven and earth. Christ said, this is not my home. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not our final home. We're on a journey. We're on our way. Christ was in exile. He came to help reveal the kingdom. Every effort to try to bring that kingdom down produces those two beasts. Both of those beasts. What's, um, what's egalitarian? Ideology usually means systems whose roots are in the mind. Ideas, ideologies. So they, they're not grounded in nature. They're not grounded in a faith. They don't have the protection of faith. They, they, they don't have a reference point in nature. They're of the mind. 
And as you know, if you look at all of these things, because modern philosophy has turned away from nature in lots of ways, it produces these ideologies, these systems of ideas. So let me pass on that because I want I want to get to two here while we have time. The last two are egalitarianism, and the last one, I don't want to call it a sexual beliefs about our sexuality. And I know that's going to get touchy because it gets home to all of us. All of us, have, we, have, we are sexual by nature. And in our age, we are extremely sexual. So, But let's take egalitarianism first. What is egalitarianism? Well, egalité is French for uh, equality. So egalitarianism would say that all things are equal. Is that what it is? All rooms lead to Rome. Yeah. I think you can see more, um, gosh, it covers a lot of ground, you know, but in the modern political sense, I think it's the elevation of the idea of equality um, to be a highest value for even people. So for some, juxtaposed, you know, Yeah, and I just wonder for lots of those people, one of the assumptions might be that you wouldn't have complete freedom until you're all equal. That so long as there are inequalities, somebody's going to abuse the freedom of somebody else. It's only when we get equal that we'll all enjoy the freedom that we hope to have. I, I think lots of people would make that argument. Not maybe not all of them, but I think they would associate the two things. Yeah, that's not our But there is no. There is no There is no absolute equality. It doesn't exist. If you were going to get absolute equality, you'd have to treat people differently. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are stronger than others. If you're going to make the strong the same as people who are weak, you're going to have to discriminate against the people who are strong. Can you speak up, Doc? Is everybody here? Can you hear Suzanne? Yes, I can. Can you say that last part again, Doc? So there is no absolute equality. People are different. There's nothing we can do about it. What we can do about it is discriminate again against people who are not as good in a certain way, not as intelligent, not as strong, not as bright, not as pretty. You have to make everybody less than they were, less or more than they were. Le less, less strong, less beautiful, less smart. You have to get those people down because there are people who are not. You can't get them up without bringing these people down. Yeah. Are, are you thinking of your egalitarianism as a view of a certain inarguable qualities like uh, equal human dignity, Well, distinguish it, because it's an important distinction you're making right now. Can you, or can you take what your, your question and put it together with what Suzanne yeah, said? Part of the Christian idea, even pre-Christian, uh, uh, most Christian, is the idea that we are all entitled to eat human dignity. That is the greatness of Christ, right? So we, we go from that to the idea that we should all be before the law. Obviously, there is our kinds of quality, but if you extend those too far, you start insisting on quality in a lot of other realms where it's not only impossible, but even advisable. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's a good thing, I mean, the 
that um, according to our belief as Christians, and it certainly entered into our political thinking, and I think until recent, but um, that all human beings are, are equal in the sight of God in the sense that every, every single human being is created in the image of God. So there's an inherent human dignity to each person. So it doesn't matter if that person's crippled or, what do you call if he's down? Down syndrome. You know, that, he, that, he, that he's not as capable intellectually as somebody else. Or if somebody is more naturally gifted as a basketball player than somebody else, it doesn't mean that that somebody else shouldn't receive the same human dignity or treatment that somebody. I, I remember, I'll never forget it, when I played um, basketball, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna name things, but I remember freshman year of college basketball, there was a guy in the court who was 6'8", big guy, and he was well-touted and recruited, and this is before season started, and we were meeting to scrimmage, and it came down to one little guy, and that big six, I, I'll never forget, he just looked at that little guy with disdain. I'll just never forget that. Our belief is it doesn't matter because, oh, so in the eyes of God, every human being has an inherent dignity. For those of you who've done this, you know that the great theme of the Iliad is that honor cannot be, the deepest honor cannot be conferred by external things, gifts. Because if it is, when they're taken away, you lose your honor. When Achilles said, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance, he's saying, all these gifts don't matter. I'm honored by God. The great truth at the center of the Iliad, remember we treat it as a founding work, is there's this inherent dignity of the human being. And if you miss it, if you don't treat people that way, what's the result? Wars that never stop. Every person has an inherent dignity. It doesn't matter what inequalities were left with because of birth. Our ideal as an American polity, as, a, as, a new, as an attempt to do something that had never been done before historically, not in Athens, not in Rome, which were our prototypes, is to see all people as equal in the eyes of God and not be discriminated on by virtue of their birth or their race, you know, whatever. So if you were in England or France and you grew up in aristocracy, we did this with Shakespeare's um, All's Well That Ends Well. Remember Helena was born of an inferior class and Bertram looked at her with scorn, <laughs> even though she was the most extraordinary person in that play. Um, so we start, our principle was, we, as a, as a polity, we wanted to get rid of all those things that would discriminate on, against a person on the basis of those things. Does that mean everybody should have an equality of outcome? Absolutely not. What it did mean is there should be no obstacles at a person's birth. So when you enter into it, if all people have that ability, that opportunity, somebody who's really bright can go on to do something. Somebody who's a better athlete as a basketball player can become a better basketball player. The whole effort of the modern world is to take equality as an outcome and impose it with the consequences that Suzanne was describing and that Chuck was talking about. So if somebody happens to be a better basketball player, you hold him down. That's not our ideal. Our ideal was to get rid of those things so that inequalities could, could flourish because people were given the freedom to do it, but nothing should get in the way at the beginning of our lives. There's a new 
word they have for that. They don't call it equality anymore. They call it equity. 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 Because yeah, yeah. that's what they mean, is they mean equality of outcome. Yeah. And I don't like it because equity in our tradition, St. Thomas, would have a different meaning. But anyway, does everybody understand egalitarianism? Egalitarianism is the belief that it, in some ways we can, if I can try to nuance this a little bit, egalitarianism is a belief that we can mediate against inequalities in nature. So that where some people are brighter, because Suzanne's right, none of us are equal, we're all different. But that should never keep us from treating each other with equal dignity. That's a very different thing. There's another kind of confusion, this narrative, let me know if it's straight so far, I'm not sure it does, like, I've talked about that. So that it's inherent in, in democracy, the, the fact that we are all equal in court of law, uh, and we all have one vote, leads people to assume that they're equal in every other way, which is kind of a different thing than imposing equality outcome, which really they present Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're going into real depths here. De one of de Tocqueville's, if, if you want a good book on America, I mean, read de Tocqueville. One of his great concerns was the leveling effect of living in America. It was his greatest, one of his greatest criticisms of us as a democracy. And he was coming from France. You know, as a, um, okay, egalitarianism is the belief that um, um, politically that we can achieve a political condition in which we, we minimize the inequalities and so do away with the differences between us. It, it's in, once again, it sort of implies a utopian socialism that we're all equal. And I hope everybody's clear about the dangers of socialism. When you put all powers in the government, people have to take less responsibility for themselves. The, the, the consequences of that are inhuman. Every, every attempt to create a socialistic world has ended in disaster. It's so contrary to our human nature because we all start with inequalities, with huge differences. Some people are smarter, some people are quicker, some people have musical talents, some people, you know. But none of those should, here's Shakespeare, they that have the power to hurt, they that have the power to hurt and will do none. The fact that you're a great celloist shouldn't keep you from respecting somebody who can't play the cello. We can't let our inequalities keep us from loving each other the way God does. Because God loves everybody fully. That's what we've been called to. Mike, you have a, go ahead. You were talking about the earlier. It's so ironic that that he criticized that leveling fact of that egalitarianism about America. Yet later on, the, uh, the slogan of the French Republic became liberté, égalité, fraternité. <laughs> so they, they uh, made that a part of it. Yeah, yeah well, that turned out. <laughs> before we start, because I don't want to, I mean, before we start, because I'm holding myself to time. I think I made some enemies in the class last week because I chased everybody out of here. <laughs> by, by the way, you, I, I, I'm just going to, I mean, on a personal note, you cannot know how overjoyed I was to see you guys carrying on. 
you know, just, but I mean, I mean that really seriously. I, to me, it was a blessing. Um, we've only got 10 minutes and we're going to touch, to me, on, on, the, on the, one of the hardest things to do. So here, next week we'll start Regensburg. Okay, I think we may, I'm going to pick up here just to give a little bit of time for an overview because we've been dealing with a lot with Fide Orazio and this is going into a depth that John Paul isn't doing in the book. You know, we've got the book, we know what he's saying, we know what the call is, we know the importance of Mary. Um, we're, we're looking at these hopefully with a mind to being a little bit more able to answer them or respond in discussions or talks with people when we, you know, what's at issue. But next week we start Regensburg. We'll pick up here, because I do not want to pinch this off right now. It's just too important. So anybody want to go back to any of these for a few minutes, we'll take some time. But I wanted to end, the, the two things that I wanted, ideology is a sort of um, umbrella term for all these systems that the modern world has come up. The, the modern world would look at every one of these as an ideology. They would say that, they would say, everything's a product of the mind. That, that begins with Descartes and Kant, who say that we don't know things, we don't know a stone, we can't know each other, what we know are the ideas in our head. It's called the idealist tradition. So everything's a function of the mind. The this, this stupidity of that is, let me see somebody stay healthy, who eats ideas in his mind instead of real food. <laughs> I hope everybody hears that. You can have an idea of a good piece of meat, but chewing on that idea is not gonna keep you healthy. Anyway, ideologies mean, refers to these systems of the head. So the modern world is, it, it looks at Christianity as an ideology, that it's just one more system. And I hope by now that everybody is cleared that even that, that argument cannot stand. Either this guy who came into the world who said he was God was the son of the Father who was the means of creation, so that creation means something, it has a meaning, or he was nuts. Either he was God or he was nuts. And if anybody's claiming he's nuts, then you, you should have an easier time because then you point to all these things. But anyway, ideologies mean systems of the head. And most moderns look at Christianity as if it's an ideology. And I hope everybody's ready to respond to that, you know, because it's, it's not an ideology. It's different from ideologies. It's not, a, it's not a product of the mind. It's a reflection of something real, okay? Sexual beliefs, I don't know, how to, I don't know the category, but sexual orientations is a huge difficulty today. We've got all sorts of problems, and I don't know where to start with it except to say, um, there's lots, all, I mean, almost every disorder that I can think of in the modern world, every major one represents an attack on marriage. Contraceptions, divorce, abortion, same-sex marriage. Open marriage. Sorry? Open marriage. Yeah, open, good, thanks. Every one of those things, every single one of them is in some ways, um, offering an alternative to a traditional marriage. So, um, and let me, I want to try to stay as neutral on this as I can. All of us, by nature, are sexual. We have a sexual nature. John Paul's 
Peter, but we, I mean, we don't have to read that to know that. We have a sexual nature. Um, sexual, sexual, our sexuality is a big part of our life. We have children. Um, we, people make love. So, so I don't know where to start with this, but um, except to say what I did a minute ago, almost every one of the modern disorders is aimed at marriages. I mean, it, it undermines, either openly attacks marriage as wrong, and that's nothing new. I mean, that's been going on for 150 years. Or it offers something as an alternative. So what do you do? What do you do with, take anything. Let's start with something simple like contraceptions or divorce or, or open marriage. I mean, let's go to those. Just to st We've only got four minutes and I'm holding myself, so we'll pick it up next week. But what would you do if you, you know, in responding to somebody who would, take any of those positions, because so often these come from with our, our own families today. We are, all of us, carrying wounded. Sorry? Look at the evidence, like look at the fallout from the contraceptive mentality since the 1930s. Like it just, it destroyed, and it started the whole thing. Like contraception was really, it started the whole entire ball rolling with the rest of the sexual problems. So first, we divorced, basically. We divorced um, creation from marriage. Then once we moved, removed creation from marriage, we removed fidelity from marriage. And then we continued, and we said, well, it doesn't even have to be um, a marriage between a man and a woman. And the woman doesn't even have to think she's a woman. Like, it's just escalated one thing to the next. And no one is happier for it. Yeah. Society yeah. is not better. Yeah. Here, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to offer one difference. But I, but I want to go to your, to the consequences. Because you can point to those as practical. I would say the divorce has, because um, I think it came in before. Um, oh, yes. So in my own mind, when I think about the, what you're describing as this yeah. progression, in my own mind started there's because that directly, it, it fly, I mean, it raises all sorts of questions about vows and fidelity. But take it out, I don't want to quibble. And, and so Heather's, you all heard Heather's point. I want to get to the argument. So you're saying all these other things, they're going to say, all right, I'm playing devil's. They're going to say, but all these things are all in the direction of being freer, more progressive. So what do you say if, if somebody's taking any of the lines that Heather's offering, and she's saying, look at the fallout. What do you point to that would convince somebody who's taking one of these other positions? Mary, go ahead. Just. I think all of those positions are sterile. It's not really love. There's She's not fruitfulness. There's not faithfulness. There's not all any of those things. There's using contraceptive. You're sterile. You know, uh, lesbian or other homosexual relationships are sterile. They don't produce love like the Trinity. Okay. Let me. Let me. We're gonna. I'm. I'm gonna start here again because it's too important. I'm, you, I'm going to be pressing this because I want, I want to see if we can get... So somebody's going to say, um, that's just a sign of your bigotry. Hold on, hold on, just hear me out. Um, because they're going to say, 
Um, we love each other. Who are you to say we don't? And the fact that we're sterile doesn't mean anything. I'm, I'm trying to play, I want to get, I want to get, I want to get underneath easy arguments here. Because we so often pass it out because we think we've got the right answer, but we're not engaging in a discussion. So I'm playing devil's advocate. And so I'm saying, we love each other. Who are you to tell me that I don't love this woman or this man? And who are you to tell me that just because we can't produce a child, it means we don't love? Because we can adopt a child. The most important thing is our love, our love is greater than these other conventions that you live by. What do you say? Mary. So what do you say in response to that? I mean, define natural then. I mean, I hope everybody's getting this. Go ahead. Right. So we can't find love, and it's just a feeling. You know, and then of course, the, the, I, you know. So love, go there. Well, love, Lord. love is willing the good of the other. Willing the good of the other. If you're in a homosexual relationship, how is somebody not going to say that you're defining exactly what we have between us? You know what I'm saying in a homosexual relationship, either, I mean, male or female, it's hard for me to imagine anybody in a relationship like that not saying, but what you're defining as love is exactly what defines us, that I'm willing to give my life for this man or woman. But n nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to say my love is selfish. So anybody in a love relationship is going to say, I love this person. My question is, what do you do then? I hope everybody sees where we're going. I mean, you... Sorry? I was just going to say that that's the hard part, is that there, in these people, there is so much that is broken. It's like they're just this, they're just walking brokenness. And you can't, like... There's so many layers that you would have to undo to get to the point where you would help them. I don't want an analysis of it. I want no, an answer to Wait, and by the way, lots of these people are, I mean, lots of these people, we, we know political figures who have come out who live the most, in appearance, live the most stable, secure, respectable kind of lives. They're not, they're not walking wounded. They're not spending their time in therapy. They live active, productive lives. Here, I'm going to leave it here. Because I said we're stopping. I, when we, we're, no, we can't. We have to tell them. Yeah, we can. Yes, no, yeah, I, we're stopping. No, there's no, no, because this is too long. Next, no, next week, next week. No, here, because, no, hold on. You guys, because it gives all of us a week to think on this. When we start next week, we'll pick up right here. Exactly here. But I don't want this answer. I Because anybody in a love relationship is going to say, of course I love this person, of course I do. So we cannot, we cannot just stay here. Um, and I don't, I, I'm asking for, and we can't just make assumptions about, you know, walking wounded and, these are real things in our age and lots of people in these relationships are productive, they're respectable, they're decent people, it's not like there's a black-white difference here. We're talking about something very, very subtle. 
So I'd like to ask everybody, think seriously on this because it's one of the major struggles for all of us. It's in our families, it's in us. What do we do? How do we answer it? Stop. <laughs> this, is where, this is where next week we pick up, okay? We'll, we, um, if you continue reading Hopkins' poem, and we will take up this discussion, and if we can get through it, we'll start the Regensburg Address. <laughs>